0: Go awesome. Good morning, morning. everybody. I'm not Kevin. (laughs) Kevin is out of town. Um, I think he's riding roller coasters as we speak, so uh, he asked me to teach today. Um, Welcome. For those of you I don't know, I'm Jennifer Thompson. I've been here about 11 years. Um, I work in research, but not in this kind of research, so I'm not an expert. So, John, is that I should talk louder? Okay. Oh, the air conditioner. Air conditioner. Oh, okay. All right. Will you keep telling me if I quiet down? Because I'm not a loud person, generally speaking. Yes. Um, so sorry, I will try to talk louder. My name is Jennifer Thompson, if you guys missed that. Um, I've been here about 11 years. I work in scientific research, but not in environmental research. So this has all been really interesting for me to talk about as well and learn about. Um, so, just a technical note my computer's over there with the slides and my speaker notes are over there but the cord doesn't reach all the way over here so i'm probably going to be back and forth a lot so we'll see how that goes um as kevin always does we will start off with some this week in the news so i don't know if you guys saw this um there are some geologists who have been working in mexico for years Um, i'm not sure exactly where off the coast of mexico but somewhere and they've been digging and they finally reached the layer of rock that they say was formed when um, this big asteroid the size of Staten Island crashed into the earth, killed all the dinosaurs. Um, So that was pretty crazy. Some fun facts. They found a ring of mountains that was created at the impact of the asteroids. Like a whole mountain range was created at the the time of impact, which is pretty crazy and blows my mind. Um, And they said the initial explosion from the crater's impact would have made a nuclear bomb look like a firecracker, which is a really wild comparison to me. And the scientists believe that 75% of life on Earth at the time was destroyed by this asteroid, including all the dinosaurs. Um, My favorite part of the article, though, was this quote from the geophysicist who's in charge of the project, who is very clearly British. She was like, this is probably the most important event in the last 100 million years. I think it was a pretty bad few months, really. (laughs) Um, Nuclear winter, you know, all of that. Um, so, speaking of the Brits, a few weeks ago, some of you guys clearly remember, um, Kevin told us about this research vessel. It's supposed to go through the Antarctic and the Arctic, um, that is, I guess, is being paid for by the British government. And they decided to name it via Internet Democracy, which was probably a questionable choice on their part. Um, the Internet naturally decided on the name Bodie McBoatface. Um, <laughs> So, unfortunately, the UK's science minister has decided that that is for some reason not suitable. So, they renamed the boat Sir David Attenborough, yes, (laughs) after the very well-known British journalist and naturalist, who is the brother of Richard Attenborough, who played the crazy scientist in Jurassic Park that cloned all the dinosaurs. Little connection there. Um, But never fear, the people have spoken. And so, Bodie McBoatface will actually live on. They've decided to name one of the remotely operated subsea vessels on the boat, Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> yeah. Um, David Attenborough, in case you're wondering, says he is honored by the name and hopes that it will allow explorers to go further and discover more than ever before. Um, the BBC radio host who actually came up with the Bodie McBoatface name says that he is, quote, sorry for and baffled by. The response his idea got. And I'm not making this up. He says his favorite name was actually Clifford the Big Red Boat. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what he wanted. Let's see. Um, let's see. So that looks like a stunning photo of the Northern Lights, which it is. Um it's beautiful. Um But it's also a photo of the massive fire that destroyed a lot of Fort McMurray, Alberta this week. So all the red down there, that is not the Northern Lights. That's the fire, which is an amazing photo. That's a Reuters photo. I'm not sure who exactly took it, but um, it's an amazing photo, but also really sobering. Um, There's a a shot of the fire. Let's see. Fort McMurray, I I had to Google map it myself, Um, but it's an oil town in Alberta, Canada. Um, It's Near forests that are experiencing a worse than normal Canadian wildfire season um, due to a drier winter, which means less snowpack, which means the ground is drier. So it's much more susceptible to wildfires. 80,000 people were evacuated this week from Fort McMurray, basically the whole town. Um, I believe if any of you know Clarence and Catherine Cawthran, um, Clarence was actually up there, I think, working in the oil camps. Um, he's fine as far as I know. Um, the fires are burning trees, so like that's a really, really wooded area. So all the trees are burning, all the carbon and the smoke is going into the atmosphere. I've been seeing photos in the news and on social media all week, and it's really kind of incredible, um, the devastation that's happening up there, and all very suddenly. Um, so that one, you know, we went from Bodie McBoat base to a pretty big downer. Um, that Fort McMurray situation also has a lot of complexity so Fort McMurray as I mentioned is an oil town it went through a really big economic boom a few years ago because of all the oil um, that actually that area and you guys might know this already but that area of Alberta is where the Keystone XL pipeline was supposed to start and all the crude oil is going to come through there um, its residents were actually evacuated this week to oil camps all the I guess all the oil men left and so that's they used the oil camps as evacuation areas um, but when the oil, pr- oil prices went down a few years ago, the economy of the town also went down. Um, even before all this devastation, they were already kind of having a rough time. And th- so you've got all the economy kind of falling apart. Not falling apart, that's a little, a little overstated. But you know the economy's having a really hard time. But then you've also got all the climate change that I read one report, at least, that said climate change is a major cause of the wildfire, because it's causing the longer wildfire seasons. Um, <coughs> This one report said that the Canadian wildfire season now starts a whole month earlier than it used to. Um, this report said due to climate change, and I'm sure that we can discuss that. I'm not an expert on you know, the science of all of that, but that's what they said. Um, so I think we should pay attention to all this, absolutely. Um, but it's no good paying attention to it if we can't actually do something to address the problems, it seems like. Whether those problems are fossil fuels or deforestation or rising sea levels, right? There's a lot of bad out there, so we should do something about it. But that gets really complicated, right? There are very few really clear-cut answers. There's tons of very different and very strong opinions about how to actually address any of this, right? Um, let's see. So for just one example of all the complexities of caring for the Earth from a a systemic perspective, we don't really have to go very far. So this is a photo of mountaintop removal coal mining in West Virginia. Um, I grew up in Knoxville, which is in East Tennessee if anybody's new to the area. I'm definitely a city girl. But when I was in the youth group, there were a couple of summers that we took a youth group trip to this little tiny town called White Oak, which is in Campbell County, which is um, in East Tennessee but on the Kentucky border. It's a very poor area. Um, It's a coal mine, it's coal mining country. And I remember one day, you know, we were doing a VBS for the kids there. Their church met in a trailer, actually, and it was the first time I'd been anywhere that was that poor. so we were doing a VBS for the kids and all of that, but then one day after we were done for the day, we took the church van and we went out to where they had been strip mining. And they had stopped strip mining a while before, but obviously the land still carried all the effects of that. And I, 20 years later, it's still very clear in my mind what it looked like. It was, I mean, it was just devastating. And so you can have, I'm trying to be pretty neutral about it, but that felt like such a horrible thing just to do to the earth, you know? But. That coal mining, whatever form it takes, and this is just one example. I'm not trying to, you know, um, to be very down on coal mining, but um, that coal mining for years provided a huge economic boost to that area. That was the only thing going for a long time, and those are regions that very much needed it. You know, coal mining was a stable, a well-paying job. People were able to support their families. Um, they could take care of their families really well, and that felt like helping people. But now, in most of the regions where that was the case, coal mining's on the decline for lots of reasons. We're moving away from fossil fuels, which is probably a good thing, Um, but also natural gas, another fossil fuel, is cheaper and more accessible now, which makes coal mining a lot less attractive. So the coal jobs have really gone away. Let's see. And we all know that the economies in those areas that are built on coal are suffering because of all of that. before I put this next photo up, I'm going to state really clearly, I'm officially neutral on all politics, so this is just an example. Um, this is no an endorsement or a condemnation of any one person or party, um, but this is obviously a photo of Hillary Clinton, and I don't know how many of you guys saw this in the news this week. Um, she's talking to a man named Bo Copley, Copley, I'm not sure exactly how you say his name. Um, she's at a round table in West Virginia. And um, back in March, she was at a Democratic debate and she was answering a question about why poor white Americans should vote for her. And as part of her answer, she said the sentence, we're going to put a lot of coal miners and coal companies out of business. Now, that was part of a longer answer about moving to renewable energy. And hopefully, she said she wants to bring economic <laughs> development to coal country um, using renewable energy because she wants to help the coal miners. That's what she was saying. but no matter how you feel about her policies or her as a person or whatever, that was a pretty big political mistake in this era of sound bites to say that sentence, I think. And people were understandably upset. So she's in West Virginia and she's talking to Bo, who identifies himself as an unemployed co-worker. And that's his wife. I can barely see his wife in the picture, but she's there too. And they brought a picture of, her, of their family, which is what she's holding. And um, I didn't write down exactly what Bo said to her, but he was basically saying, "I don't see how you can say that sentence that you said and then say that you want to be our friend and help us. How can you do that?" Um, Well, (laughs) that's true. I'm officially neutral. Remember, (laughs) Sam? Right? You can say whatever you want. They all say say it. say it. it. They all say it. Um, so I don't know his specific story, but of course he lives in an area that's been pretty devastated by, um, by the decline in coal jobs. The CNN article that I read said, in this particular county where they held the round table, um, Mingo County is where it is, um, coal jobs have been cut by half in just the last four years. So this area has been really devastated by that. So my point is this, since it's clearly not politics. Um, <laughs> Even if you think the best thing for the planet is to get rid of fossil fuels altogether, as one example, to completely get rid of coal and natural gas, all that, go to solar and wind power, you can't ignore the fact that in doing that, there are a lot of people who would suffer because we have all these systems in place that are built on those fuels. And people rely on those systems to feed their families, to survive for their livelihoods. So it's complicated, right? So amidst, oh, I kind of, I gave away my next slide. Um, Amidst all this talk of political refugees right now, which is a whole different class, um, this term climate refugees caught my eye in the news this week, which I'm sure was completely the intent of the copy editor who wrote that headline. Um, And of course, that goes along uh, with what Kevin's been talking about in here. So this is from a series that the New York Times is doing. Uh, This particular article talks about Residents of, I'm not sure I'm gonna say this right, but Île de Jean Charles, Louisiana. Does anybody know how to say that? Okay, we'll go with it, thank you. (laughs) I tried, I Googled it last night and could not find anything. Um, Anyway, this is an island off the coast of Louisiana which is basically disappearing. Um, There's a lot of work on infrastructure in Louisiana, (coughs) like flood walls, levees, all of that kind of thing. But this island is basically treated like a lost cause and you can see why that might be on the map so this is the island this is the one road to and from the island and everything else is just marsh and water basically so there's the only the one bridge and that bridge floods pretty regularly and when when it does flood that means people miss work um, and these are people who you know can not just take a day off generally if they're not at work they don't get paid um, the kids miss school on the mainland. There are only 60 people on the island, so I, I would imagine I don't know. Um, I would imagine there's no school on the island, or at least not enough school for everyone to graduate. Um, they can't get to the doctor, all of that. You kind of get the idea. And it's not a wealthy area. A lot of people um, live in trailers because they did live in houses, but then those houses got wiped out by the hurricanes. Um, there's actually a short YouTube documentary I found last night, and there was one of the... One of the men who lives on the island was kind of going through all the hurricanes that they've gone through, and he started with Andrew, then I think it was Lily, and then Gustav. I mean, their houses have just been wiped out. And a lot of them haven't been able to afford to rebuild. So they live in trailers on their their land. So this quote from the New York Times article kind of sums up the situation, and I'll read it because I know probably some of you guys can't read it. For over a century, The American Indians on the island fished, hunted, trapped, and farmed among the lush banana and pecan trees that once spread out for acres. But since 1955, more than 90% of the island's original landmass has washed away. Channels cut by loggers and oil companies eroded much of the island, and decades of flood control efforts have kept once free-flowing rivers from replenishing the wetland sediments. Some of the island was swept away by hurricanes. What little remains will eventually be inundated as burning fossil fuels melt melts polar ice sheets and drive up sea levels, projected the National Climate Assessment, which is a report of 13 federal agencies that highlighted the Ile de Jean Charles and its tribal residents as among the nation's most vulnerable. More than 90% of the island's original landmass has, has been gone since 1955. That really blew my mind. Um, so, We're trying to solve this problem, right? And back in January, um, the Department of Housing and Urban Development actually awarded the first grant of its kind, which was $48 million, to resettle the 60 people who live on the island in a location they haven't determined yet. But of course, it's not just as simple as packing up 60 people and moving them, right? Um, They've actually tried to do this three times already. And every time it's failed due to logistics or politics, and the residents of the island are mostly American Indians who understandably have a long-standing distrust of the federal government. Um, And their families have lived on that island for a really long time. They're very attached to that land. Now some of them do really want to leave. They see the housing and the economic situation on the island and think that the mainland will offer a better life. They want to get out. But others are bound and determined to stay because they love the land where they grew up. They don't want other people telling them what to do, all kinds of reasons. Um, and this program is voluntary I feel like I should say that was one of the when they were talking to the residents of the island about how to institute the program that was a key component was it was gonna have to be voluntary um, so people are afraid that wherever they go and no one has figured out yet exactly where that's going to be as I mentioned um, they're afraid that there won't be work and that they won't be accepted in their new communities I mean, we've seen even recently how people can be, communities can be a little afraid of a whole group of people coming to resettle that they don't know. You know? Now, of course, this isn't unique to just this group of people. Um, this New York Times article um, says that by 2050, this is what they say, between 50 and 200 million people, mostly subsistence farmers and fishermen, could be displaced because of climate change. Now, I know it's incredibly hard to get exact numbers. Um, and that depends on a lot of assumptions. So who knows what the actual number would be or will be. Um, but even if that's anywhere close to correct, that is a lot of people. A lot of people who are gonna be in similar situations to this island off Louisiana. Yeah. yeah. Did
1: you say forty eight million
0: dollars? I did. That's what the article said. For sixty people? That's, that's what it said. said.
2: That's eight hundred thousand dollars per person. Yeah. I think they're gonna be okay. Yeah. yeah. Ooh, ooh. I mean I understand they don't want to
0: move, but right. I mean that's the thing. It gets really complicated, right? Per yeah. Person
2: and it's mm-hmm. It be the person that to the <laughs> well, and the money is
0: from the government, home. so hopefully they've already taken their whatever didn't cut they're the going to take. But that I'm sorry, uh, Housing and Urban Development. Mm-hmm. So and the article didn't. Alan, the article didn't go into exactly what that money's going to be used for, and they, I, I didn't. <laughs> <there. Yes. laughs> yeah. They were talking about um, how, of course, a lot of these people, most of the people on the island are American Indians and they basically want to move their reservation. So I don't know if that is going to be geared toward, like, recreating infrastructure on a new reservation somewhere, I'm not sure, so yeah, I don't know. so that's a lot of people, and I mean, even if this is just one example, perhaps not a great one—I don't know—but this is gonna, this kind of situation is gonna be affecting a lot more people. Yeah, I, I wonder how much
3: it would cost to relocate all the
4: people in Lower Manhattan after
0: another hurricane. Mhm. Mm-hmm. And Miami is another good example that has come up. Yeah. And that was this article. I didn't want to like quote a whole lot from this article, um, but that is one thing the article got into. Is like this is a small example. Of an island that's disappearing with relatively few people we can you know in theory solve this problem even if maybe this is not the best way to go about it or there's a lot of controversy about how to go about it but you know if my if things keep going the way some people say they're going to be going and miami starts to disappear how are you going to deal with that how are you going to deal with manhattan you know charleston or you know all kinds of examples yeah and then i mean those are pretty wealthy areas that are going to get a lot of publicity right you know, this, the subsistence farmers and all of that, these are not wealthy people. They're, this is the first I'd ever heard about it, but they've been dealing with this issue for years, for decades. So they're not getting all the publicity. What's gonna happen to the people who can't get all the PR about it? Yeah. Anybody else? So I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer. I really promise I'm not. <laughs> But um, so my point is this, I think most of you guys are here in this room because you see problems that are related to environmental issues. Right? And I think sometimes we think we have the answers to these problems, whatever side of that you're on, um, whether that's to eventually replace coal and oil with completely renewable resources or to build levees and flood walls that keep the flood water and the hurricanes out or to move people, whatever that is. But I think we have to recognize that even when we think we're doing the best we can, to solve the problems and to alleviate the results of what's been already set in motion for years. Um, There are still, at best, complications, and at worst, additional suffering that comes with it. You know, there are very few straightforward fixes or easy answers. And I think that Jesus' call to love our neighbor, to love one another, means in part, trying to reduce suffering. But sometimes, reducing suffering for future generations means Introducing, introducing suffering or additional burdens for people now, or vice versa, you know? And those are really hard things to wrestle with. I think a lot of us, at least me, feel kind of helpless about this from a systemic level. I mean, maybe I'm the only one, I don't know. Um, most of us don't work for housing and urban development. Uh, we don't, we're not running for office. We can't shape environmental policy necessarily, at least not directly. So it's really tempting to say, we just can't do much about it. But even in our personal lives, we run into really difficult questions. Um, I thought maybe we could use a little levity after um, oil fires and coal mining and climate refugees. So this is Christmas trees. Um, Who among us hasn't wondered whether having a real Christmas tree is taking a precious tree from our forest or having an artificial tree is killing the planet with all the petroleum that was used to create it? So the good news, on this particular question, they say either way, it's basically the same. It doesn't matter. And they've even come up with this very helpful list of ways that you can reduce your environmental impact at the holiday season, um, including calculating your tree miles, how far your tree had to come to you. So (laughs) if you guys want that, I can send it out. Um, um, But slightly more seriously, There are all kinds of decisions we make every day about how we can take care of the planet within the context of our daily lives. Some of those things are pretty clear cut. We turn off lights when we're not using them. You know, we carpool. We don't buy food that we don't think we're gonna actually eat, things like that. But there are a lot of questions where the answers aren't so straightforward, right? So we all get these notices with our water bill or our electric bill or whatever. Go paperless, save the planet. Do everything on your computer, on your smartphone. (laughs) Don't waste paper. And that sounds like an awesome idea. Except that, of course, your smartphone and your laptop are killing the planet as well. So you're kind of, you know, you're caught in this catch 22, right, or at least it feels like it. And am I the only one that feels this way? Because I get, I don't know, thank you, Paige. (laughs) So. I mean, these things aren't wrong, right? I mean, this shiny laptop that I'm putting these slides up on, up on the screen with, it's going to be considered old in another year and completely obsolete in another two or three years. And it takes tons of natural resources to create. And that's before you get into all like the manufacturing debates and the wages and the factories and all of that. Um, But I and probably all of you do lots of hopefully helpful, life-giving, productive things with our laptops and our smartphones. So that's a really hard balance for me to strike, personally. Um, Another example I thought of would be like my daily commute, right? Which I'm sure most of you guys, or a lot of you at least, have similar situations. So I work at Vanderbilt, and I live near Nippers Corner. Um, I bought my house in 2008 near Nippers Corner, partly because I like the area, but also because at the time I thought, oh man, everything near Vanderbilt is so expensive. In retrospect, (laughs) it doesn't seem so expensive now. Um, might should have changed that decision but that's where I live so um, the most environmentally friendly way for me to get to work would probably be to walk or to take a bike right but my commute is over 10 miles on the most direct way on the interstate so that's just that's not really an option so the next thing would be public transit right that's the most environmentally friendly thing to do and when I bought my house I actually did and I have occasionally um, over the years, look to see how long it would take me to commute via bus. And the answer is two hours, one way. <laughs> because the shortest route has me taking three separate buses and transferring twice, waiting for those buses and then getting, actually getting to my work, walking to the bus, all of that. So if I commute outside the biggest rush hour, which I'm very fortunate to be able to do, um, my commute takes me 20 or 25 minutes driving my car. 25 minutes versus two hours, this is kind of a no-brainer for me. So I drive, All right. So I have, my car is a 2009 Toyota Corolla. It serves me well, gets perfectly decent gas mileage. Um, but you know it gets better gas mileage is a Prius, or a Leaf, or a Tesla. I'm not getting a Tesla, unfortunately. <laughs> we'll just rule that one out. But, so if I really love Jesus, love the planet, what should I do, right? I live alone. I don't have to worry about school zones and all of that. So I could sell my house and buy a tiny condo for what I would sell my house for, close to work, and then I could walk or bike or take the bus. But then so many of those condos that are going up are new construction. That has to be tons of resources that are being used, not to mention all the debates about gentrification, affordable housing, all of that. Um, Not to mention that it would be a lot smaller. I couldn't have my friends and my family over, all those kinds of issues, and complete life upheaval for a little bit. So okay, if I don't move, should I buy a new hybrid or an electric car? Mm -hmm. I don't know, but that takes so many resources to build a new car, right? Um, You know, would the earth be better served by me driving my current car into the ground and then buying a new car versus buying a new car now that's gonna save me gas mileage and all of that? And I'll tell you, I am like, genetically programmed to drive that car into the ground, so that's probably what I will do. Um, but those are the kinds of ruminations that go on in my head. I don't think I'm completely alone in that. And um, my tendency is to always feel like there is one right answer, and I have to figure it out. But all of this is so complicated that it's a carousel of all this thinking and research and reading and thinking that you just can't let go of. So, and this is discussion time because I don't have the answers. Um, How do we do the best we can, both as individuals and as families, and and within any systems that we can influence, whether it's politics or something else, um, to care for creation? How do we do that intentionally and thoughtfully, but without driving ourselves crazy thinking through every option, or just being paralyzed and not doing anything at all? So, I'm asking, who's got ideas?
2: There's an example of Cage Cove when mm-hmm. they wanted the Smoky Mountains, they moved everybody.
3: Yeah. No questions asked.
2: Mm-hmm. Bye. And uh, I think John D. Rockefeller uh, Rock bought the land or somebody like that,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and they turned it into a national park. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, those poor people and poor Indians, mm-hmm. but, you know, might imagine, turn it into a casino building on that bridge. Mm-hmm. A <laughs> Or something.
0: Yeah, something. Yeah, growing up in Knoxville, I mean, we went to Cades Cove several times, and it's a beautiful, beautiful area. So it's great for all of us now that they did that, but it is kind of eerie to, I I imagine a lot of you have driven it to drive the loop road, and it's like, I mean, a lot of it looks like it looked when people left. So if you know the history of it, it's very kind of eerie, I think, to me. Yeah. Well, I think
5: so much of the thing is that, uh, you know, I struggle because everybody says there's a problem, nobody has an answer. Mm-hmm. Anyway you read, it, you'll say, Well what if nobody says there'll be an answer? But I I get to the point of where um, I think maybe the most difficult part of it is is that whatever you choose, oftentimes then people counts somehow they they come up and say, Well, you're doing this and because you chose to do this, it shows that you are anti this what if mm-hmm. this goes on so there's a gentleman you can see but whatever you're doing so the fact is that many times it's a degree right mm-hmm. okay so i'm a planet killer because i drive an expedition mm-hmm. okay it, it's a big vehicle but i carry five dogs and stuff like that. i mean it, now i don't have to i mm-hmm. could live on a postage stamp i yeah. guess somehow and that might make people happy mm-hmm. but the fact is is that it doesn't it seems to me that they makes make the difference what decision you make Somebody's going to say you're doing it wrong, mm-hmm. and that's that's the really struggle. That of any way that you choose, whatever system it is, there are, seems to be a group of people who go around, and their whole life purpose <coughs> is determine that whatever you do, it's wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's to me seems to be a lot of the struggle about what to do.
0: Yeah, There's so many strong feelings about it.
5: A historic example of what Sam's saying. Think about the. Um, Blacksmiths, 120, 30 years ago, every civilized town in the world had at least one blacksmith. Mm-hmm. And then somebody brings in these automobiles, they're loud, they stink, the roads are tearing up the environment. What do you do?
4: Mm-hmm. If we
5: have the cars come in, all the blacksmiths will lose their job. If we save the blacksmith's jobs, there's no cars. It's no win situation. Mm-hmm. Somebody's going to lose. and that's, I don't mean to be negative, but that's, that's reality. We can make a huge global change somebody wins somebody Mm -hmm. loses.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Walter?
5: Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's about a
2: win-lose. I think it's about asking good versus Mm bad. And I think there is a way to try to determine what are some better choices here. Um, Because that still gives us room for, this isn't a perfect choice, Mm -hmm. but at least it's Sometimes I think when we get into these binary decisions, we just really mm-hmm. resolve ourselves of all responsibility, and that, mm-hmm. that I don't think that's
3: helpful.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Steve, did you have something?
2: Um, yeah, one of the th- things that I thought was really, I, I mean, it, it is a complicated situation. I just I spent a semester in um, Chile, and one of the things that impressed me was is when they were thinking about all of these different kinds of issues they approached it from many different angles not just one Mm -hmm. for instance one of the things that impressed me was the national parks there uh at one time they were just run by the government but then the native indigenous people resented that and so now the government has turned the running of those parks over to the indigenous people and they're the ones who receive the income from that which (coughs) means first of all they have uh, a livelihood and second mm-hmm. of all they are much more <laughs> interested in protecting those mm. those parts for people to see mm-hmm. so I, I think there are some they're not always easy ones but i think there are the idea of looking and trying to resolve that from
4: many different angles is well well. yeah absolutely yeah. i think you started out
0: perfectly by saying i'm asking and i think that's um
4: david and i always try to do that we try to keep questioning our decisions, mm-hmm. you know, even if they're small, and do your research, try to figure out what's mm-hmm. best, and it may, you know, it may not be the best answer, but I think to constantly always have a question in the back of your head mm-hmm. and not just making decisions blatantly, but thinking I do every purchase I make, every act I make does impact someone else. And thinking it through and
0: Cypher's
2: so I think there's, there's short term solutions and long term solutions.
5: I, I really think it's through NEF is sold uh, elected to other times to Korea and, hmm. and now we're trying to go back to those uh
2: transportation and business roses still in use, so we're trying wow. to solve the problem. For now we really need to build the whole time of music for what we really need.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, I saw it, yes. If
3: Yeah. The most expensive restaurants in my neighborhood, um, how many dishes I was going to have to wash, and how much cooking that really meant. Mm-hmm. But that month of commitment, you know, I I, don't, I certainly don't do that anymore, mm-hmm. it really changed my life and some of the choices that I make with what I eat and I go and eat. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think um, it, it's hard to prop things up. Whoever said, better better choices not binary choices. So I am an environmental engineer by trade, and and when we can work in the margins with the environment, mm-hmm. and the Dutch have proven with untold investment, you can actually hold the environment back, but we're not gonna do that very many places. It's too expensive, nature always wins in the end, and mm-hmm. so you're not gonna preserve that island. Yeah. And in the same way, you're not gonna, so that's a physical sense, but in an economic sense, you're not gonna preserve the cold culture. Mm-hmm. You just can't do it. What they should have done at the height of the cold culture was diversify, mm-hmm. but they didn't diversify. And so, kind of like the sermon today, they're like the dinosaurs and the, the meteor has hit mm-hmm. and we have to do the best we can, but when we try to prop things up artificiality because of a sense of do-gooderness, it ends up costing everybody more, and it eventually fails in the end. You just can't do it, and so yeah. I think we we have to help people be flexible. Mm-hmm. The Irish were flexible when the potato famine hit, mm-hmm. and and we all need to be flexible in that way and help people. And so for us personally, it's who can I help who has lost options to create better options for them.
0: Yeah, and I think to me that's a huge point that I've come away with thinking about these things is like. You know, the coal mining example, I don't think coal mining is ever going to be as powerful as it once was. I think that's, I don't know, I don't know enough to know if it's a dying industry or just not going to be that powerful, but either way, having empathy for the people who are suffering in that situation, doing the best we can to help them out in whatever way makes sense for that situation. Just the empathy, I think, is really key to dealing with Mm -hmm. all of this, you know? And realizing that other people's choices might need to be different than yours.
2: In Florida, there's a town called Punta Gorda, and they're building a new city right outside the town, mm-hmm. their electricity is solar-powered totally 100%. Oh, wow. But that works in Florida because they have 230 days of sunshine. Yeah. That's why they call it the sunshine. Sure. But in this area, it won't work, or in Cincinnati, where we live, it won't mm-hmm. work, so they build coal-fired plants their Ohio River. So I think every area that you're from, it's not one thing that's gonna help the environment. It's gonna have to adapt
3: your area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jennifer, mm-hmm. I read yesterday thinking about short term versus long term solutions. So mm-hmm. there's Zimbabwe has had terrible total drought and so they are putting up their wild animals for sale because they're starving mm-hmm. and they cannot feed them. So they're asking for people who have the means and the resources to care for wildlife mm-hmm. to possibly purchase wild mm-hmm. animals. Mm-hmm. And so and since there's been a drought like They said since 1999, foreign investors have completely pulled out of Zimbabwe, so they have no Mm -hmm. money, and then they have all this drought. They can't, they can't grow the crops they typically grow, and there's no export going on. Mm They don't have any natural rivers, whatever. And so immediately they need a cash flow, and they see their animals dying. Mm -hmm. But in the long term, what would that look like if there were no lines in Zimbabwe down the road? Mm -hmm. Measure
1: someone's desperation now for what might be good in 50 years. Yeah. It's not yeah. A answer. There's not. We've talked a little bit about uh, individual versus group mentality, mm-hmm. and if it's going to come in the future, where governments are going to have to say you have to do it this way. Mm-hmm. I'd say now we could we could do it on an individual level, and if it spread, um, sort of a grassroots effort. You can calculate your carbon footprint right now and mm-hmm. see where you are, where you shape up compared to others in the US, where you shape up compared to others in the world. And you can do some things to bring yourself to net zero. You were talking about you know, living on a poster stamp. Maybe it's not living on a poster stamp, but it's buying the lot next to you and keeping all the trees in it, uh, or planting more trees, or going to solar, or doing mm-hmm. things like that to make yourself, uh, even if you're driving Expedition, you know. From a bottom line standpoint, (laughs) (laughs) you Uh, set yourself
0: up for that one too.
1: Yeah, bottom line standpoint is if if you're net zero, um, Uh and actually TVA, Uh our biggest power producer, is evolving right now. Uh If you look at 50 years ago till now, where they got their power, Mm -hmm. Um, I was just at a plant two weeks ago that they're shutting down. They're shutting down multiple coal fired plants going to Kojin and other things um, yeah. because people don't want to see that don't want mm-hmm. you know the environmental regulations are such now that it's cheaper to go a different route mm-hmm. but if you look at a pie graph of what where tva's power comes from now solar hydro wind mm-hmm. is a much bigger slice than even just 10 years ago
5: yeah they're also selling the Duke
1: Yes, in Belafon, if anybody wants to buy it. I've yeah. been there. <laughs> <laughs> I got stuck
0: in the elevator oh, at that yeah. plant. And,
4: and in fact, right now, with TBA, you can already, I mean, you can look at that pie chart, but you can already pay a, a premium, a surcharge, to make sure that your your consumption is coming from a certain Buy an $8
1: price credit price. or something for one oh. one block of, of yeah. energy. Yeah.
0: Cool. All right.
3: Else?
0: I see people in the hallway, so I guess we're about done. Thanks, guys. Yeah.
1: <laughs>